the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And good afternoon. Welcome to you on this Thursday, the 25th day of June. Please note it's exactly six months before Christmas. I've given you plenty of advance warning so you can do some shopping for me. And uh, we'll post online my shirt size and jet. No, we won't. (laughs) But we do welcome you to the June 25th edition of Lifeline. Hope you're having a good week so far in the, uh, the new normal that we are all experiencing and um, we get right down to cases here tonight if you are an adult in your 50s or older um, you might be part of the so-called sandwich generation that's the generation that may still have kids at home that you're looking after as well as parents that you're now looking after and undoubtedly as we age and our parents age and we begin to see them slow down and begin to deal with the recognition that they can no longer fend for themselves. Sometimes the answer is to move them closer to you or even in with you if you're able to accommodate and your spouse can tolerate. Um, Other cases, perhaps more severe, particularly in relationship to health-related challenges where they really need a higher level of attention and care. Anyone who has made the decision to place mom and or dad into a nursing care facility will tell you that it is the hardest decision they have ever made to put them in a care home. And over the course of the last three months, those same people will tell you that the second hardest decision that they've ever made is to leave them there. And I say that because of these statistics that indicate that an alarming number of senior citizens in our country have been victims of COVID-19. And some of the nonchalant attitude by young people that say, well, if I get it, I'll get over it, I'm not worried about it, are obviously extremely ignorant, highly selfish individuals who don't take into consideration that if they get it, everyone that they come in contact with may get it too, or may spread it, least of which the risk of grandparents getting it, and becoming one of those statistics, the statistic where today 40, 40, 40% of California's COVID-19-related deaths come from nursing homes. Shelley Beach is an award-winning author and co-author of more than 15 books. She is co-founder of PTSDPerspectives.org, which provides consultation services on post-traumatic stress disorder in medical, mental health, educational, criminal justice, professional, and faith-based settings across the nation. And Shelley, it's always a delight to have you on the program. It's wonderful to talk to you, Craig. 
We've had a chance in the past, of course, to talk about your experiences in, in dealing with your mother and um, her, um, her pathway through the painful diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, in many respects, you're, you're, uh, you're an expert on this. You certainly are in my eyes, based on the books that you've written, the experiences that you've had, the stories that you've shared to encourage those of us that are dealing with parents that have been diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And so I thought it appropriate to, um, to invite you on the program to deal with another aspect that uh, sort of adds to the frustration of, of children who not only worry on a daily basis about mom and dad, just because they're far apart, even if it's just across town, mom and dad are in a rest facility and you're at home and you can't keep an eye on them 24 hours a day, but you pay someone who does and you hope, mm -hmm. you hope that that person or that company, those individuals that are charged with the responsibility of looking after your parent are doing the right thing. Sadly, right. we've seen a number of cases where just the opposite has been true. So it comes down to this big question. If you're fortunate enough to bring them back home to stay with you, uh, I guess people can make that kind of decision, but those opportunities are probably few and far between for most people who have mom or dad in a care facility. Right, right. Yes, I think, I think most people um, are finding, because of separation and families being scattered across the country, um, that the options most often seem to be that um, our loved ones, and because of, um, of complicated um, medical conditions, that our loved ones are often in a care facility. And um, it was interesting because when COVID broke out this past year, I was in California, and um, my children were all hugely concerned because I fall into that high-risk category and have multiple you know, comorbidities or illnesses, and and um, I wasn't, of course, my husband and I are not in a care facility, but, um, you know, the risk that there is there and was there for older people, so much more so than for, for, younger, for younger people. So I was looking at it uh, from a different angle this time, a little bit more personally um, in terms of, my health and my husband's health and but yes there are so many so many statistics that are just so disconcerting right now california yes that 40 percent of those covid 19 deaths are coming from nursing homes here in uh, in iowa where i am um, we are in the county that's leading in um in the state of iowa with with the number of of COVID-related deaths, and the majority of those for us here as well are coming from nursing home and assisted living facilities. And um, so 43% of COVID deaths uh, on a national basis are occurring in nursing homes and assisted living, living facilities. Wow. And then, um, while just 11% of the country's cases are occurring in long-term care facilities, the deaths that are occurring Relate um, are happening at a rate of about a third of the country's pandemic fatalities. So that's hugely, uh, there's a huge disparity there between the number of cases that are occurring in, in care facilities and then the number of fatalities 
that occur. And, of course, age and a lot of things are playing into this. But there are other problems that are at work there. Um, there are, you know, complicating factors having to do with inspections. Unfortunately, in- inspections have halted. The federal government halted state inspectors to stop doing their annual inspections because they felt that they were going to um, they were going to spread the virus, and so they wanted to focus on hot spots and infection control and in the virus itself. But on the other hand, um, state inspections for for regular health and safety issues stopped on March 23rd. And along with that, um, a lot of people, I think, are not aware of of ombudsmen, uh, the people who are charged with fielding complaints and advocating for nursing home residents. And there's always an ombudsman available within a community who you can take your complaints to. And as as of that same date, on March 23rd, the ombudsman were no longer um, able to enter nursing home facilities to investigate or to, you know, look for um, the concerns that that were being brought to them. They could no longer go into nursing homes. And so... um, so, so let me interrupt. Not, not, not to, not to borrow from um, phraseology that's often used by uh, parents whose children put them in these facilities where they feel like they're in prison. But there's a degree to which what you're describing, Shelley, sounds very prison-like, meaning that you have a group of people closely cloistered together. And in this case, another group of people responsible for their oversight and care. If you're in jail, it's a guard. If you're in a care facility, it's the nursing staff. And people from the outside are not allowed in, just like a prison. And so literally there's, there's this enclosed environment that can serve as a medical um, or viral Petri dish, as it has for COVID-19. And meanwhile, a lot of the outside factors that would normally give a level of supervision, be it visiting friends, visiting family, visiting ombudsmen, inspections by the health department, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like a lot of this, part of it out of interest to try and reduce the spread of COVID-19 to care facilities, but it sounds like a lot of this now has been kind of unplugged. The safety factors that were in place before are now gone and this just really feels like a formula for disaster. It, it is highly distressing, highly distressing. And, and I have to just say that during, during the time that the outbreak, um, just prior to the outbreak beginning, I had a, a friend uh, living with me, and she was a worker in a, in a health facility. She ended up leaving she, because she was doing what she felt was you know, mandatory mandatory reporting of neglect and and other issues within the facility that she was at. She ended up um, being fired, but she really actually she walked out the door because she said, "I I can't I can't work here and in um have a, have a good conscience that anybody here is being cared for well." So. I was getting personal reports as well from people in my community. So it, it lays a larger burden of responsibility on us as caregivers to become, to get whatever information that we can and, um, 
and and do that in whatever manners of whatever manner is available to us. So how can we help keep our loved ones safe? And and um, so I I have my you know my 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 means of recommending to people how they can go about doing that in spite of what's going on. So and you've put together a. Um kind of a checklist, I'll call it, of is your loved one's care facility safe? And what struck me about this is that a lot of this, while you would think, gee, you have to be a, you know, a private investigator and a medical expert and all that, no. In fact, many of the tips are just good, solid advice for routinely checking up on the well-being of your loved one. And we'll get to that list when we come back after a brief time out. With us today is best-selling, award-winning author Shelley Beach, We're talking about the challenge of caring for a parent in a nursing home in the middle of COVID-19. We'll tell you also where you can get a copy of that checklist coming up in just a moment. But right now, let's check in on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with best-selling author Shelley Beach. We're talking about the second hardest decision that most kids make for their parents, the first being putting them in a care facility, the second leaving them there in the wake of COVID-19, given the fact that such a striking percentage of COVID-19-related deaths are taking place in care facilities. Now, that said, we know that there are challenges, and saying, well, we'll just take mom or dad out and bring them home is for many families not an option either because of distance or practical issues or the attention of medical care and so forth that they need is just more than what you can do in terms of matching that standard in your own home that said there are steps that you can be taking to at least get a handle on the quality of care your parent is receiving and whether or not there are any warning signs that intervention is necessary and in the next few minutes Shelley, if you would kind of walk us through the research that you've done and the checklist that you've put together that can help folks keep their loved ones safe. Well, I I started and when you know we you sometimes end up making making these decisions quickly and unexpectedly. I tried I tried to start investigating before we had to make a decision. I started by gathering recommendations. And that was recommendations from doctors, you know, basically saying if you were going to put your loved one into a facility in this community, where would you where would you place them and why? Or asking um, friends, uh, pastors, people in the medical community, um, those kinds of people for their recommendations, and asking them why in particular was it the quality of care? Was it because there were therapeutic programs available, uh, good management, asking them specific questions about why they recommended those facilities. And then those personal recommendations, um, moving on from there, I began to conduct research. Um, that's my nature as a, as a teacher and professor was conducting research. And so I found out the best places to go to get that information and some people just, you know, you won't be, wouldn't be aware of these 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 um, these resources probably until you're in this position. But you can check for complaints and violations for nursing homes at a, n- a number of different um, 
areas spots. So on the web, there's one called Nursing Home Compare, and that is a website that's provided by Medicare. And so they give you uh, listings of specific complaints that have been filed and violations that have been filed on nursing homes. So you can look and see how many violations and the types of violations that have been um, been, fi- been filed at the facility where you have your loved one. Um, you might find such an alarming result with that that you might decide you might need to move them, um, which I would I would do in a heartbeat if I if I felt that their safety was at risk. So that's nursing home compare. There's another one. Um, that's offered through ProPublica. They also have a similar tool that helps you investigate uh, violations of inspections and also violations of, you know, health and safety things that have been um, filed. And this also um, lists nursing facilities in every state and allows you as a consumer to compare the records of facilities in your area very quickly and easily. So doesn't matter you can if you live in Michigan and your loved one is in you know Maryland it's an easy tool to to use and then uh, this individual who is a uh, an ombudsman how do you locate them well there's a, again a tool for locating uh, the long-term care ombudsman's office in your area and this agency operates as an advocate it operates under the older Americans Act and it's, it's there to protect the rights and the well-being of people who live in long-term care facilities and skilled nursing facilities. And they also record information on quality of care and inspections and how, it, how um, violations have been resolved um, and citations and fees and all those kinds of things. So checking basically with those three organizations gives you uh, those three those three tools gives you a very good picture of violations that have been filed and the kind of quality of care that you're going to get. Then everything else that I would say would be that visit as often as you can. And if you can't get your eyes on this place, ask someone to go for you. Visiting, and the other thing is that you can also call. And the two things that I recommend under this category, visiting or calling, is to ask questions and to observe. So asking questions, how often is your loved one bathed? You're entitled to know these kinds of things. How often are they bathed? Are they bathed every other day? One particular facility in our community, I'm aware of uh, loved ones not being bathed more than once a week. Um, do Do they have complaints of being ignored when they ring their bell? because they have to go to the bathroom? Do they get, are they responded to quickly? Again, one instance I know of, uh, uh, someone in the care facility was ignored for so long, they ended up going to the bathroom in their wastebasket. And it was such a horrific emotional thing for them to have to do that, so humiliating. It was, it was terrible. And then, and then the, the, the cleanup for that wasn't taken care of properly. So do they have complaints of being ignored? Do they have complaints of not being cared for? Um, what's the staff to, re, uh, to resident ratio? And does the staff have protective gear all the time? 
I have a family member who worked in a facility where they were not providing protective gear. Our residents being tested for COVID-19, several, several facilities, again, in our community did not test for COVID-19. And unless you asked, you didn't know that it's also a facility that has been, where there's been high infection rates for COVID-19. Um, and ask about the, the means of communication. I know that I was with family the other day and the phone rang every day and there was a, a recorded message from the care facility where their loved one was staying, staying and it talked about the infection rate, whether or not anyone knew had been infected and what the current status of illness was in the facility and repeated the number where you could call if you had questions. Is there a good communication tool uh, available? Um, so talk to the county health department officials who are tracking numbers and have more awareness, call them and ask questions, and then observing. Is the facility clean? Are the residents clean? Are the caretakers clean? Can you smell odors there? I mean, do the residents look happy and engaged and observe the food handling and observe the way employees wear masks and gloves if you have the opportunity to do that? Are they discarding gloves, wearing them and discarding them in the appropriate way? Um, are they protecting residents from exposure? What's your loved one's general mental health there? And um, those kinds of things just come from observation and asking questions and being really proactive, um, even if you can't be physically present and asking someone else to kind of be your eyes and ears for you. And that's probably the best bet, and that is the necessity to be proactive. And, and certainly if you run into any of the circumstances that um, Shelley has mentioned, there are a number of outside agencies. There is the Commission on Aging based in Sacramento. And, and I guess if you really feel as if a loved one is in um, serious and immediate danger, uh, contacting adult protective services related to your local uh, county uh, can be very beneficial. It, it's all about taking the initiative and being proactive. This particular article, Is Your Loved One's Care Facility Safe?, is available online when you go to ShellyBeachOnline.com. That's Shelly with two L's, H-H-E-L-L-Y, ShellyBeachOnline.com. And Shelly, we sure appreciate you taking some time to uh, share these insights with us. And um, hopefully in the process, we can all get a little better night's sleep and make sure that mom and dad are safe. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Craig. You take care now. 531 from KFAX. We're going to uh, step aside to get you updated on some traffic right now. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. 
a lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end. Warren Smith joins us now, Vice President of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program. Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged. And just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your your, your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today? Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus said, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says, or the, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because... As we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed, as, as in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in Restoring All Things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope, in the midst of these chaotic times. So at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, you know, when we were kids, uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget that, in fact, is foundational to our very faith, which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three R's, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for 
not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that uh, that Christ played in world history. Yeah, well, that that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We, in fact, we begin near the beginning of the book. We talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. Whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we, we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this, this activity of, of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's, it's one thing um, to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh, transforms and Jesus redeems, but if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel. Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And and I ask that question because, you know, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you marry the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you have perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay. But here in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening? And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't his grace shine the brightest? Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, in, in, in throughout history, I think not only in our own individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian Church thriving whenever the world around it was in chaos. We tell stories, for example, uh, from the second and third century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases were just just ravaging cities, and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease, but it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, Even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that that, um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine, and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, 
one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another, were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember. Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the, the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I is, is, the, is the message of heaven all that powerful a one, uh, absence the existence of hell? I, I, would, I would suggest probably not. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce, Bruce once said that uh, the, an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and it's it's awful also easy for us christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor but you know our neighbor jesus died for our neighbors even the one the neighbor that we don't like you know just as much as jesus died for us so i think that um, you know what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that he sent his Son, and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. No, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not a, an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me, and so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here. Um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do. And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, vice president of World's News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is Everyday People. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest, economic imbalance, social strife, all of this taking place. It's its hard, obviously, uh, and frustrating for a lot of people. And then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if, well, you know, they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and, and affecting God's plan for re- uh, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. But maybe they feel like, well, as overwhelming as all this is, though, isn't my work largely going to be for naught and, and, and ultimately insignificant? Well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stonestreet, uh, my co-author, 
uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or um, Eric Metaxas even. Uh, so what can I do? And what we discovered in, in our searching around for stories and the stories that we reported in the book uh, were stories of, of individuals not doing great things, but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak back a number of years ago. But what we what has turned the tide, if you today abortions the number of abortions are going down, the younger generation is more pro-life than its parents. That's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And, and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, th- this movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying we, we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Yes, they, they are engaged in pro-life activism. They are maybe engaged even in protests from time to time, but that's not all they do. They are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America. It's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country, and I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do. Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China. And and it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it, it is enormous, it is breathtaking, it is an incredible uh, work of, of feat to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual Indiv- small bricks. Yep. Any one of yep. those bricks by and of themselves would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together 
creates this incredible edifice that has such an Im- impact that it can be seen from space. And it, and it, it, it dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here, that, you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest or, uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in, in economics or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own. But together, Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can it? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives that kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story of when he was a high, in high school. Uh, he uh, had, it, it really because he'd been cutting up in school, his teacher made him visit an older woman, a sh- what we used to call a shut-in, uh, to, and uh, as punishment for cutting up in class. But So John visited this woman who at that time was in, uh, probably seemed ancient to John, was in her 70s or even early 80s, and they just spent 30 minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and, and John said, do you remember who I am? And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea, but a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later, but he always remembers the, the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker has been, having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which, of course, changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability, our job, our goal, our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I, I think that uh, great things will happen. In the Absolutely. World. And, of course, through that act of obedience, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People, newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 